I always, I always get lost back there. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I made it out this time. It's like you think there's doors back there, but there's not. That's just a window. And there's a bed in there. At least I didn't trip this time. That was more fun for me than any of you. I know you don't care, but whatever. Hey, welcome. <laughs> I'm Graham, the campus pastor. I'm excited to be with you guys this morning. Uh, we're continuing our, uh, by the way, if you want to go see Mamma Mia, it's playing here today and the next rest of the week. So I hear it's good. I haven't been invited to see it yet, but I will be soon after today. Um, yes, focus. We're continuing our series on Dangerous Prayer. Uh, we've talked and processed these last month about what does it mean to pray dangerous prayers. We're looking at Psalm 139, specifically verses 23 and 24, where David's crying out to God. He says, search my heart and know me. Try me or, or test my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So the first week we talked about what does it mean to be searched by God? What does it mean for us to actually process our, our inner demons? What does it mean for us to seek and search those hidden places, the places we don't want anyone to know and the places we really don't want to look at ourselves? And then the next week we talked about what does it mean to be known? Known by people in our congregation, but also to be known by God and the ways that we protect ourselves. We deflect, we lie, we minimize. We build these walls that work. So you don't know me, and I don't know you, and we're excellent in our culture about protecting ourselves from each other because if you know me, you might actually reject me. And you can reject the fake me because that doesn't really hurt. But if you actually reject the real me, it's devastating. And that's the same fear that we have with God. And so we build this walls because we know the walls protect us from people and we've got to assume those same walls protect us from God. And so we build these walls, but what we do is we don't protect ourselves from God because any fool knows that God already knows you. He knows the hairs on your head. He knows when you sit down, when you lie down, when you stand up. He knows everything about you. He knew you before you were in your mother's womb. But what we do is we build these walls and what we actually do is we don't protect ourselves from God. We actually block our view of him and his glory. Then we talked last week about what does it mean to be tested by God? And that no matter what happens in the testing, if you succeed or if you fail, both glorify God. That even when you fail in your testing, what comes about is the glory of God. But if you succeed, the glory of God is shown. We talked about Abraham and Isaac and how he was going to sacrifice his son, but he passed the test and his faith grew. We talked about Peter as he walked on the water and he fell like a rock to the bottom until Jesus pulled him out. But in both of those situations, what we see is the glory of God, not the faithfulness of man, even though that's a byproduct. So this week, what we're talking about is the idea and the concept of being led by God. Now, see, the problem with is this. A lot of us don't even know who he is. And how can we be led or follow somebody we don't know? And a lot of the issue is that we are following something that is made up in misbelief. So look, I want to talk about two things. And if they get out of order, it leads to religion. But kept in order leads to a relationship with Christ. 
So first, I want to talk about what does it mean for, to be like God? What does it mean for us to grow in godliness? And then reverse it and help us to understand that we, if we need to know what it means to be godly, we not, we've got to know who God is. So I want us to look first at 1 Timothy 4, chapter 4, verse 7. Now, Timothy is like Paul's greatest disciple. Paul was a Pharisee, all these different things. He became one of the greatest writers of all of Scripture. He, Jesus kicked him off a horse. Like, he's, he's a real dude. And then, Timothy was discipled by Paul, and he was sent out. And that's why they call people who grow up in the church and are sent out by the church, Timothys of the church. He was the disciple of Paul. He was the next wave of evangelist, preacher, teacher. He was the guy. And that, this is who wrote this is Timothy. So, 1 Timothy 4, 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So we're commanded in Scripture to train ourselves for godliness. And he gives the uh, analogy that, hey, physical training is of value. That it's, it's okay to work out. It's okay to get in shape. It, it makes sense for you to be physically fit. I think of Jim Elliott. He's a famous missionary. He was killed in the Amazon. And he went to college. He went to the same college I went to way before I did. And he wrestled. He was a wrestler. And he wrote in his journal, and you can read this in the book. It's called Into the Spear. He wrote in his journal, he says, I am wrestling for the sake of the glory of God, that if I become physically fit by wrestling, I can serve Christ better. Because, as it says, being physically fit is of, of some value. If you can help people, if you can do things, if you, if you don't get tired, if you don't get weary, if you can love your kids and your family, if you can love people in this world because you have the energy to do so, that's of some value. But rather... Godliness is not just a value in the present. It's a value to come. And it's cool. I want you to, I'm going to teach you a little bit of Greek right here. The Greek word for, for train. Train yourself is imnazo. It's actually where we get the word gymnasium. The, if you, the root word is gymnasium. It's actually, that's what it is in Greek. Himnazo is the word they're using right here, but the root word is gymnasium. It's gymnasium yourself gymnasium yourself for godliness. And he's teaching us that to become like Christ, it takes effort. But effort is not what gives you Christ. See, the, the problem that we have in our church and our culture is we think that we have to gain Christ by gymnasium ourselves. That if we train ourselves for godliness, we gain Christ. But the problem is, I'll give you the answer up front, we get Christ first, then we train ourselves for godliness. When you reverse it, you become a Pharisee. When you reverse it, you feel like you've got you've to solve all these problems. Let me explain it to you this way. Tim Keller. He's a pastor in New York. He writes this. You see, the targets of these stories are not wayward sinners, but religious people 
who do everything the Bible requires, Jesus is pleading not so much with the immoral outsider as with the moral insider. He wants to show them their blindness, narrowness, and self-righteousness and how these things are destroying both their own souls and the lives of people around them. So many of us, when we read and we process what it means to be a Christian, we think we've got to join the club. All right, once you become a Christian, all right, 10%, 10% of your pre-tax. Don't give me any of that after-tax money. Your pre-tax money, that's a tithe you've got to give me. Put it in the bucket, put it in there. You got to give me your 10%. All right, now you've got to volunteer. Now you've got to join. Join a life group, join a Bible study. You've got to find somebody to tell all your dirty secrets to. All right, if you do those five things, you're a Christian. Welcome to the club. And we put this weight and this pressure on us. Oh, I didn't read today. I didn't study my Bible today. Ah, I'm three weeks in. Ah, oh, it's a month. Ah, oh, it's two years in. I haven't found that accountability. Ah, oh, well, I'll just live in sin. You know, we, we, we think and we process that we have to do these things. And by doing these things, we gain God. How are you a Christian? Well, I go to church. Well, I tithe. I serve. I do all these things. None of those things make you a believer in Christ. But our culture and our our society, think about it this way. It's from the beginning of time that this happened. Moses, he came down with ten rules. That's it. Don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery, don't do all these things. By the time Jesus came, they were like, like, these rules are not enough. We need to add more rules, more rules, more rules. By the time Jesus entered in the scenario, for the religious people, they had over 3,000 rules. God gave them 10. They said, God, that's not enough. We need more. That's why they yelled at Jesus. Jesus spit on the ground and made dirt, turned it into mud, healed a blind man. And they were like, oh, on the day that Jesus made the mud and healed the blind man. Because you, know, you guys all know this. If you spit in the dirt, and the dirt makes mud, and mud, when it dries out in the sun, makes bricks, and making bricks is work. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. That's what happened. That's how crazy their rules were. But we as rule followers do the exact same thing. We think if we do these certain things, we dress a certain way, we talk a certain way, we do business a certain way, that if we go to a certain church, if we read a certain book, if we do a certain thing, if we're part of that club, then we're believers. What makes you a Christian? And if the answer in your heart and your mind is having a relationship with Jesus Christ, then I would argue that you understand what it means to be a follower of Christ. So many times we, 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 we get mixed up. Let me show you a, a, some imagery to help you understand. Now, for all you A-type people I know, the arrow's in the wrong spot. It should be back a little bit towards the little pinnacle. Relax, okay? Relax. Didn't drag the air all the way. Flat line to conversion. Now, how do you know you're a believer in Christ? You confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. Fully God, fully man, died, rose again. That's what makes you a believer in Christ. Now, after that point, now, right in that moment, are you free from all your sin? You're free from the punishment of sin. You're still a sinner. You're still struggling. You're still tempted. You're still frustrated. That's one of the things we don't talk about. When you become a Christian, you're like, well, hey, everything should be good. I shouldn't be addicted to pornography anymore. I shouldn't be struggling with lust or or stealing or lying. I shouldn't do all these things. 
you are free from the punishment of those things. It doesn't mean you won't struggle with those things. That's at conversion, which is the Malcolm Muggeridge says it's a miracle of a moment, but it's the task of a lifetime. So what happens in that moment when our culture takes over, we think, done. I've got to do the five things. Tithe, Bible study, church, uh, volunteer, and go on a mission trip. I've got to go see what all those other poor people are doing in the rest of the world. That's what I've got to do because then I can see how much God loves me. That's what we think. And we do these five things, you're good. And you're good for life. That's what we think. That's how we process. We're a very due culture. But what happens is, when you become a believer in Christ, you, the purpose and point of this is to understand the gospel every single day. And this is the gospel. You understand the awareness of God's holiness. That's why you pray. That's why you read. That's why you study. By doing those things, because you understand who Jesus is, you grow in your awareness of his holiness. And by doing so, the cross increases. Now, why do we confess? Why do we repent? Why do we struggle? Why do we do these things? Because it gives us an awareness of our sinfulness. And as you grow in your awareness of God's holiness and our sinfulness, the cross gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And none of the things that we're talking about become tasks. They become responses to the cross. Why do you give? Because Christ gave. Why do you read? Because you want to know the Father. Why do you do anything that you do as a believer? It's out of understanding who He is, not who you are or who you should be in your mind's eye to him. So when David, the one who was attacked by Saul, who defeated the giant, who fell into lust, the one who wrote this says, lead me, he is asking this Jesus to lead him. Not a Jesus that says, hey, you gotta do all these things, because he didn't. David was terrible, probably worse than a lot of you. He committed adultery, which it's, it's bad. That's bad. But then having the dude killed? That's, cr not, none of you, if you've done that, he was a man after God's heart, I'm not judging. I'm just saying, that's brutal. His son overthrew him. David, I mean, a guy after God's heart, the one who wrote all these Psalms, he was wicked to his core. He was aware of his sinfulness. But if you read any of the Psalms, he was keenly aware of God's holiness as well. So when David prays this prayer, and he says, lead me, he is asking with the intention of following. And the question we have set before us is, are we willing to follow the one who is ask, we're asking to lead? So many times in our culture, in our lives as believers, as American Christians, we want God to lead when we want Him to lead. But we can handle it ourselves. I'll do the, hey, I'll do the things you've asked. Uh, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll volunteer in children's ministry. I'll give some money every once in a while. I'll do, I'll do, hey, I'll do the things you asked me to do. That's not really asking God to lead you. When you say, God, lead me, some of you need to walk out of this room and move to another state. 
Some of you need to move to another country. Some of you need to repent to your, your wife or your husband. Some of you need to be led into humility. Some of you. Some of us need to be led into a relationship with Christ. Some of us need to make some difficult decisions. When you're asking God to lead you, you just he searched your heart, you found the, the stuff that needs to be revealed, you're asking him to know you're opening yourself up to vulnerability, and then you're saying, all right, God, I know the test is coming, so you're going to have to lead me through this test. Some of you need to walk out of this room and, and not be in relationship with somebody else. They might be sitting right next to you. Some of you need to repent to the person sitting next to you. When we ask God to lead us and we have a right understanding of who Jesus is, then we, it is a lot easier for us to walk in this. A lot of us think of Jesus as a landlord, not a good, good father. You've got to pay rent. You've got to do the things that are required of cultural Christianity. If you do that, God's not going to kick you out. Rather than having a Jesus that knows everything about you that's never going to kick you out. He knows the depth of your sin. He knows you better than you can. And you saying, lead me, he's going to lead you. He's going to lead you to sacrifice your son. He's going to lead you to walk on the water. He's going to lead you to give the fishes and the loaves. He's going to lead you to do some very radical things. My hope for our congregation is to be like Isaiah and you say, here I am, Lord, send me. But we can't if we're leading ourselves. And if you're not a believer in Christ, you cannot be led. Because you do not have an understanding of this. I know that sounds difficult and harsh, but it's true. You're not aware of God's holiness. And you're not fully aware of your sinfulness. But as those get deeper, it doesn't lead to frustration and de depression. It leads to a bigger cross. You see, when Jesus leads us, we walk in life and life abundantly. The whole purpose of this dangerous prayer series is to understand that these dangerous prayers are not dangerous because you're going to be hurt or you're going to be scared, or you're going to be afraid, or, or are there, there, there are these things that could happen in your life. The reason these prayers are dangerous is because you're going to begin to look more like Christ when you pray them. And you know what? If they call the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more are they going to malign the household? It is difficult to understand and to do this. Because there's a cost. And the cost is you have to lay your life down. And by laying your life down, you're going to have to lay down your addictions. You're going to have to lay down your, your hopes and your dreams. I think about this just yesterday. Dude hit, Natasha's in the parking lot at, at Walmart and, you know, hits our car door and just blow, the whole thing blows up. I'm inside. She's like, get out here. And I'm like running out there with my child in my arm. I'm like, what's going on? This big gentleman's like, she's saying I hit her car, I didn't hit her car. And I'm like, it's, it's okay, oh, yeah, it's fine, no big deal. Not because I'm super righteous or holy, I'm just saying, what, what you know, that, remember the old thing, what would Jesus do? I, first of all, if I destroy your hopes on that, I'm sorry, but that is the dumbest thing ever. What Jesus would have done, he would have fixed the car, he would have fixed the other car, he would have healed the man, he would have floated away. <laughs> like, let's just be real. He'd have walked on the water over to the puddle. I mean, that, that's what Jesus would have done. He would have made five cars. 
you know, like, when we have that idea of what would Jesus do, it's a, it's a, it's a moral value statement. What would Jesus do? Well, Jesus would be kind. Well, Jesus would heal this, whatever. What I'm asking you to do, maybe I should make a bracelet so I can get out of debt with Dave Ramsey and all that stuff. I'll make a bracelet and sell it to you guys. Uh, what did Jesus do? Jesus died on the cross, forgave you of your sin, the punishment you had for sin. Same for that gentleman, same for my wife and for my kids. Jesus has already done everything. What would Jesus do? Jesus has already told us what to do through the word that divides families and hearts and spirits. What did Jesus do? He died on the cross, and by doing so, he eradicated death and the penalty of it. And by doing so, we now are aware of his holiness, and we have an opportunity to be at the cross. As the cross grows, we can discipline ourselves for godliness. It takes resistance. How many of you, sorry if I'm picking on ladies, you know the little five-pound weight you guys have that you like do your triceps and you do your biceps and all that stuff? You know what I'm talking about. The little... 10, I'm proud of you. Um, <laughs> killing it. Killing it. <laughs> She's already read this scripture. I don't care who is in this room. If you started lifting that thing 100 or 200 times, I don't care how muscular or how strong you are, it would be very difficult to do. So when God says to discipline ourselves for godliness, to be led by Christ, it starts with resistance. Why do you think Joseph ran from Potiphar's wife? Because he knew if he stayed, he wouldn't make it. Some of you need to run from sin. And by doing so, you build resistance. I, so for me, I use a lot of hyperbole all the time. Billion times a day I use hyperbole. <laughs> if you got it, thank you. Uh, I, so I'm trying to underestimate some of my things. One, because eventually I'll get to the right answer. But I find myself walking away from situations where I know I would use hyperbole. Or I walk away from temptations or lust or things that I know I struggle with. I just have to start the five-pound weight. I can, I'm, not, I'm not strong enough to stand and engage in this. Maybe someday I will. But right now I have to walk away. And I'm just lifting that five-pound weight. Because godliness, train yourself for godliness. You know, see... Physical training is of some value, but godliness is a value for the present and the future. The way that we become more like Christ is we're led by Christ in a right understanding of who he is. So where do you need to be led? Let's pray. Father, you invite us into relationship moment by moment, day by day. Lord, I ask, I ask for myself, I ask for our congregation. To, are, we willing to, are we willing to pray that prayer? Just maybe for a week, maybe for a month, maybe for a year. God, search me, know my heart. Try me, find any grievous way in me, and lead me into the way everlasting. Father, if you search my heart, you know where I struggle. Lord, if you know me, I know that you care. Because being known and loved is the most beautiful thing in the world. 
Lord, I know that any test that you throw will only increase my faith. If I fail or if I succeed, now I'm asking you. Now knowing my inner darkness, now knowing that you care and love me in spite of that, now knowing that you're going to be with me through the trial, Lord, I'm asking you to lead me because I can't do this on my own. I can't walk in humility. I can't walk in repentance. I can't walk and apologize to my wife. I cannot walk and ask for forgiveness. For I cannot do these things without you. Lord, if creation's going to cry out, Lord, I want to as well. Father, if you're asking me to do something, I want to do it, Lord, and I need your help because I cannot do it on my own. Lord, and I pray that over the congregation that we are willing to walk in your leading. To see Savannah transformed, to see the city transformed, to see the county, to see this world transformed for Christ. Let us be who Christ calls us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.